I grew up wanting to be this. So I would uh, play wiffle ball by myself in my yard, uh, uh, you know, on my family farm in central Illinois as a little kid, and, and call games. I'd throw it up and pretend I was a play-by-play guy and hit a hit a ball off the wall, off the side of the house, and then, you know, it's off the wall. That's gonna go for a double. <laughs> yeah, of course. Pretend to be Harry Carey or Jack Buck. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the half-hour intern on the theme of the Super Bowl yesterday. Today's guest is Scott Lynn, who is a sports broadcaster, sports journalist, and most recently also became a sports author. He's written two really, really awesome sports books, and his most recent book I picked up and I just really, really liked. It's such a cool, interesting concept where he interviews sports stars about who their idols were when they were little kids. So anyways, we're going to talk about his life as a sportscaster, his life as a sports journalist, his life as an author, all these different things, how the sports world has changed since he's been in it, and uh, just what it's like to be part of such a cool, cool world. So without further ado, here is Sportscaster. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It's great to be with you, Blake. Yeah, so I... uh, I am fascinated by by the sports world and sportscasters and, and all of that. I got to imagine that there is like no harder job to get in America than being a sportscaster. Is that accurate? Like, how the hell do you get to be a sportscaster? Don't most men want to be related, you know, in the field of sports in some way? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, uh, and and it is difficult, and it's harder these days i think than it was in the past certainly to have a career with you know full time work benefits the whole the whole package uh we've seen a transition with the internet and all that to um where you know people are doing well for instance podcasts and, th- and things like that uh that might be related to sports or whatnot but the bottom line is i went to school eons ago back in uh, the mid-70s to become a radio and tv sportscaster a a radio tv journalist basically and uh, that was my i got a degree mass communications in tv and radio such a program does not exist anymore it's obviously now about the media uh, social media and things like that and there i think there'll always be jobs for people interested in sports but it will be more like um you know piecemealing a career together and and trying to uh, find a perfect niche. Um, when my, you got that degree, what do they what do they teach in a degree like that? Like, what are your classes like? Well, we we had the history of broadcasting. I mean, as far as uh, you know, what what uh, how we got to this point in time. Back then, you even had to have a license to be on the air on the radio. So you really had to understand everything about the the broadcasting business you had to understand the legal aspects you had to understand you know again the technology of it all how it worked um you had you were responsible for anything that you were saying on the air and that kind of they got away from that at some point along the way but that's kind of the stuff we studied also writing no matter what you're studying if you're going to be a journalist whether it's radio tv internet uh, newspapers if they're still around in a decade or more um you have to be able to write you've got to be able to put words together 
And I think that that, um, that you get a really good basis of that. And I'm sure that that's what the social media major is now. You're learning all about the various uh, aspects of the technology and how you might be able to find a niche for yourself within that. Yeah, trying to write for people with a incredibly short attention span nowadays is probably <laughs> that's, what they're that's teaching. Right. That's right. But but again, you know, you asked about everybody wants to be a sportscaster I, because it's fun. It's the fun and games department of life. And that's certainly what I wanted to do. I grew up wanting to be a, an announcer. I wanted to call baseball more than anything. I wanted to be a major league baseball announcer. I never got that chance because, frankly, I wasn't connected well enough. I may have even had the skills to do it at some point, but I never got that opportunity because my name isn't Buck, as in Jack or Joe Buck, yeah. uh, Carry, Harry Carry, Chip Carry, Skip Carry. I mean, there's a bunch of carries that uh, generations of broadcasters, sports broadcasters, um, Brennemans or Alberts. I mean, you have to have some connection. You have to be in the loop. And it's certainly much easier if you have that pedigree, uh, the name of somebody. If your dad or your granddad was a, a great broadcaster, you have a you have a step ahead of everybody else. Yeah, that's interesting. So I imagine a lot of people probably start calling games like for the college that they go to or something, like tra just trying to call any of the teams just so they're getting some sort of experience. Exactly right. And I was kind of a, a misfortune that uh, I went to SIU Edwardsville, Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, and they had a radio station, but I was not able to get any of the uh, broadcasts. Uh, they had one person who basically served as the sports director, and he was the same year in college I was, and they didn't change it. Now, this may have changed now, but back then, you this one guy, his whole four years, he was the sports director. And I think you know, they probably have realized that wasn't the best way because guys like myself, we had no chance, no opportunity to call games. Uh, I do know that schools now uh, around the country will give uh, students the opportunity to call games, whether it be lacrosse or baseball, basketball, whatever it might be, um, because, again, you have a lot of people that want to become sportscasters. And play-by-play, -play, you talk about fun. That's the most fun in being a sports journalist, and I was for, you know, have been for like 40 years, and there's nothing more fun than calling games on radio or TV because you never know what's going to happen. You've got the best seat in the house. Most times you're sitting right there courtside. You know, the officials might even come over and talk to you during a timeout. They'll explain why the technical was called. I mean, No way, really? Damn, it, it's, that's it's, so cool. It's the best. And uh, again, being a sports fan, I don't think there's anything better than calling play-by-play. -play. How the hell do you cut your teeth as a play-by-play? -play? Like, I imagine just being a sportscaster in general, even if you're doing like color commentating, has got to be difficult due to the speed. But trying to cut your teeth doing play-by-play -play announcing, like, do you, would you just sit there in your dorm room or something and just try to talk about games? Or like, how do you get the speed down of everything that's happening? It's amazing to me. Well, again, I grew up wanting to be this, so I would uh, play wiffle ball by myself in my yard, uh, uh, you know, on my family farm in central Illinois as a little kid, and, and call games. I'd throw it up and pretend I was a play-by-play -play guy and hit a hit a ball off the wall, off the side of the house, and then, you know, it's off the wall! That's going to go for a double! <laughs> yeah, of course. Pretend to be Harry Carey or Jack Buck. So I always wanted to do that. I always felt I had a pretty good idea. I'd observed some of the greats. Um, 
I, I interned with Jay Randolph, who was the St. Louis Cardinals TV play-by-play guy when I was in college. So I got to, you know, become part of the Cardinal family a little bit and, and just really be able to observe closely uh, what it what it took to be in that business. I think internships are tremendous. If, if you're thinking, no matter what job it is you're looking to uh, pursue, an internship, paid or unpaid, uh, can mean the world to you. And that's how I got my start. I actually interned with Jay Randolph. Um, he allowed me to cut a, uh, a tape. I ended up getting a, a sports job as a weekend sports person in Decatur, Illinois, a very tiny, small market, didn't make hardly any money at all. But that got me started. Within a year and a half, I was working in a top 20 market in the Tampa, St. Petersburg area. Still didn't have a chance to do play-by-play, but uh, was on TV and polishing my skills. Eventually, I moved to Portland, Oregon. And while I was the sports director of KGW Television there, um, we we basically signed up the Ducks and the Oregon State Beavers to call some of their football games. And I called play-by-play. It was my first opportunity. I, uh, While I was at that station, we also uh, televised a triple-A game. The Portland Beavers played the Minnesota Twins in an exhibition game, and I called play-by-play of that. So that was my first real shot on air of play-by-play, but that led to me being able to have a tape that I could send to uh, back then, it was Prime Sports Northwest, which became Fox Sports Northwest, um, and I became eventually their top basketball play-by-play guy and got to call games for uh, Gonzaga and Washington and Oregon State and and on and on. It was uh, it was again, it's just so fun. I would I still had a full-time job at my radio station, so I would have to take my vacation time and some extra days off in order to be able to go do those games. Wow! But I would have traded that for the world. Yeah. Have any of the teams that you've ever called or the teams that you've worked with uh, won a championship? Yeah. um, Actually, the Trailblazers were in the NBA Finals a couple of years when I was hosting the fifth quarter postgame show. And uh, I've I've done I've actually done some play by play of the Blazers games. Um, I've done Oregon State radio and television from time to time. So uh, there was about, I think, 12 years or so. I think I did the. TV games for Oregon State. So, so what football, is that whole stretch basketball. like for you? Does uh, a lot of does a lot more like national news coverage come into the area, and it, like how does that impact your job? Oh, it was unbelievable. Um, in ninety and ninety two, when the Blazers went to the NBA Finals, and they played the Pistons in nineteen ninety, and the the uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls in ninety two, and they had the best record in the NBA in nineteen ninety one, and got upset in the conference finals. I mean, that three year stretch is the best three-year stretch in Portland Trailblazer history, and I was part of it. Not that I played, not that I was calling the games, but I did the fifth-quarter postgame show. We would, go after every game, go down to one of the local restaurants, and a player would come down and join us, and the place would be absolutely packed, standing room only. We would do a live radio show from there. Uh, it was tremendous. And in 1992, or 90 and 92, we would go out to the the tiny little airport where the Trailblazers' private jet would fly in, and they would allow the fans to come out there, and as soon as the plane landed, they would open up the gates. We were set up there with our radio station. We would go live, you know, middle of the night. The Trailblazers are home, and we would interview the players as they got off the plane. So, again, you talk about work. Yeah, it was full-time work, but what fun that was. And then, uh, again, in in 1992, that was the same year that the Dream Team, the Olympic Dream Team with Larry Bird and and, and Jordan and Magic, I mean, just on and on, they played in Portland in order to qualify. It was the Tournament of the Americas. They came to Portland, 
and played there against all these other international teams. And I was able to interview on my radio show in stu- in, in, at, at Nike Town. Actually, they just opened a new Nike store. I interviewed you know John Stockton and David Robinson and all these different players, uh, Scottie Pippen. They would come down to this uh, to the Nike Town through their affiliation with Nike. All these Nike athletes, and I would interview them live in front of a standing room only crowd. So it was Damn, the most fun so cool. time. Yeah, and the 1992 NBA draft was even held in Portland. So, you know, those were some great years and a lot of fun. Um, Those are the kind of things that you really just cherish when all is said and done. And uh, at the end of my career, after I'd been laid off from my radio station, I still had an opportunity to realize a dream. I had not called a major professional sporting event, but because the Portland Trailblazers regular announcer uh, fell ill and couldn't make a road trip, I got to go on the team uh, on the road with the team and call a couple of games in the NBA. Um, I, at the same time, on this, in fact, the same. Exactly the same time, I was working as a fill-in backup for Oregon State and got to travel to the nation's capital because Craig Robinson, Michelle Obama's brother, was the coach at Oregon State at the time, and he would take us. He would take a team back to the Washington D.C. area to play every year, and I got a chance to tour the White House and shake hands with the President and First Lady in the Oval Office. The whole first family came to the game the next night, and they stood. Uh, I have a, pr- a picture of myself uh, calling the game with President Obama standing up right behind my left shoulder. I saw that photo. Uh, That's so I, amazing. I, That's so crazy, crazy to do to sportscasting. You got to go to the frickin' White House and meet the I president. Know. That's unbelievable. I, it was. Uh, and, and then again, you know, he shook my hand. I'm live on the air, and I'm like, wow, I just shook hands with the president for the second day in a row. I believe that's a personal best. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. And how cool, like, of all, of all presidents to get to meet and talk to and stuff, I – a president that really is into hoops, you know, it's like he's oh, not absolutely. he's not kind of pretending like he's into sports because it's the quote unquote American thing to do. He just is really, really into basketball. So that's no, awesome. In, in fact, during our White House tour, we were able to go out onto the basketball court, that outside basketball court that's out there by the South Lawn. And we got to shoot baskets and take pictures with the White House uh, stanchion. The, uh, you know, the baskets had the had the the cushion there that said White House on it. I mean, it, it's just a memory of a lifetime. And, you know, thankfully, I was able, available and uh, able to do that. And, uh, again, just a great thrill. So through 40 years of broadcasting, I have done it all. I've called greased pig scrambles at the county fairs all the way to <laughs> to the NBA, a couple of games in the NBA on the radio. And certainly uh, my years as the, the Fox Northwest uh, play-by-play guy for their basketball games. If it was a live game, I called it. So I did about 50 games a year for two or three seasons. And um, I never made it to the major leagues except for that NBA stint a couple of nights. But I uh, I still enjoyed the heck out of my career for sure. What uh, Out of all the sports that you've done, what is the most difficult to do play-by-play for? Uh, it's all different. Um, baseball has the most downtime, so there's a lot of storytelling that goes on. You have to be really prepared. I, I, you go hours before the game uh, to watch batting practice, stand around the cage, listen, talk to the coach, talk to the manager, uh, talk to players if uh, if it's allowed, uh, so that you have stories to tell during the broadcast. You know, there's a lot of time between there's a fastball up and in ball one, and while the pitcher gets the ball back. 
unless it's just total dead time, you you got to come up with something to say. Yeah. And, and, and you don't have to talk all the time in a baseball game. There's a pace to it, obviously. Basketball is tough. But what I didn't realize until I did those two games back-to-back where I did Oregon State, the, the game in at Maryland in front of the president, I did that game on radio uh, on a Sunday night. The next night, I was in Brooklyn and called the Nets game against the Trailblazers. I didn't realize the shot clock made that big a difference in the broadcaster portion of things mm, because yeah. you know you had the 35 second shot clock or 30 second shot clock whatever it was and for the for the college game and you come into a kind of a routine and there's a flow to it but the NBA with that 24 second shot clock you don't have time to do anything any storytelling you're just trying to keep up with the ball it's up and down and of course those pros are so much faster even than the college players Hey Blake, let me let, one other thing about play-by-play that I, I think I should share with, with with your followers here is there's a big difference between radio play-by-play and TV play-by-play. In TV play-by-play, the fans, the viewer, can see what's happening. You don't have to say there's a fastball up and in because they're seeing it. But you are the absolute. I mean, you're the eyes for anybody listening to you on the radio. You have to describe everything. You have to tell them that the center fielder shaded over toward left just about five steps. You need to say the shortstop's deep in the hole. Set the scene. Paint the picture for them. It's a whole different brand of play-by-play, uh, a whole different style. Wow, and yeah. I did mostly TV play-by-play my whole life. And so when I went to do these games on the radio for the Trailblazers, and, and, you know, and, and I, I probably had only called five or six games on the radio in my life, and I was desperately trying to keep up with the action um again you almost can be exposed if you are in a habit like i was of just kind of letting the picture describe it as i did on tv whereas on the radio again you're the eyes you got to keep up with it and that's where the speed and the pace is really important because you've got to stay up with the action yeah i god i can't i can't imagine when you talk about it like that uh let's talk about your voice and the voice of a sportscaster is that something that you have to uh perfect is this just strictly a god-given beautiful thing you have there <laughs> well thanks for that i you know it's funny I've, I've never liked my voice and people have told me oh man i can tell you're on the radio and i guess it's distinctive enough in that i was here in the tampa bay area one week two different people recognized my voice from portland they were here traveling on business and they heard me in a restaurant and they recognized my voice as being on the radio from Portland. I couldn't believe it. So I guess it's you know somewhat distinctive, uh, at least for people who've heard me for a long time in the Portland, Oregon market. Um, you no, know, you don't have to have a great voice. I've heard sportscasters that are shrill, if you will. Yeah. Um, um, I, I've. It, it just depends on on. You know, again, the connection is somebody in your corner. Is the 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 people are the are the people that are paying the bills, the sponsors. Do they like you? Um, there's a lot of things about that. Sure, it helps if you have a, a you know a, a nice voice, something that is pleasing to listen to. Nobody has a better voice than Vin Scully, the longtime baseball play-by-play guy for the Dodgers. Oh my lord, he's just the best and so eloquent and. Uh, just such a joy. To, it's like spending an evening with an old friend every time he comes <laughs> on the air. Yeah, and and that's I think what, uh, especially in baseball, that's that's critical to have that. Definitely. All right, Scott. Let's uh, let's change gears a little bit here and talk about uh, talk about the transition in your life and book writing and um, 
what kind of kind of led to all this. So you got stage three colon cancer, which I, I just can't even fathom how scary and, and what's that like. So tell, tell us a little bit about how cancer changed your life and getting that diagnosis and the decision to write Thornridge. Thornridge High School with Quinn Buckner, who had played in the NBA and then later played for Bobby Knight, was the captain of the last undefeated NCAA team. Quinn Buckner uh, played on this team at Thornridge. Thornridge won the last of the single-class system uh, championships in 1971. They came back the next year, and nobody, nobody came close to, be- to, the- to beating them. They were the greatest team I've ever seen. Now, this was my senior year. I was the captain of the team ranked second in the state, and I saw them because I we got upset in our own regional, so we never got a chance to play them. But I saw Quinn Buckner at a Trailblazer game. He was working. He was working as an analyst for the Indiana Pacers. He's a vice president of uh, the Pacers. But I'm sitting there having dinner with with Buckner, and I said, "Hey, Quinn, I just want you to know I'm from uh, I'm from Lincoln, Illinois, and uh, we were. You might remember that was the team that was ranked second behind you guys. We had, we had kind of looked at the, your your team, and I would have guarded you." Um, if we had ever got a chance to meet you, and you'd have probably kicked my ass. <laughs> and, and he looked at me, and I'm six five, and uh, you know about 250, 260. And he says, "No, man, it looks to me like you could have played back in the day." And I said to him, "Well, I was six five, six six, but I was only about 165 pounds." And Buckner, <laughs> who was the national athlete of the year, all American in football and basketball, says, "Oh yeah, I'd have kicked your ass." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, that got me thinking, oh, man, somebody should do a book. I could, I mean, again, it's this particular team, Thornridge High School, is still legendary. It's still regarded the best team in Illinois history. John Wooden recruited Buckner. Bobby Knight got Buckner uh, with his recruiting efforts. So um, it, was, it was a story that I thought needed to be told. And one night in June of 2008, I woke up in the middle of the night and said, I'm going to be the one to write that book. And I got up and I literally went to the... Illinois High School Association website, and they had a, 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 in their history, in their archives, they had a picture of the team and listed all the players, and I printed that out, and I said, I'm going to get to each of these guys. So I, I started um, pursuing interviews with all the players on that team, and the coach as well. I, I tracked them all down and managed to find them and conducted interviews with, uh, with basically... I mean, 90% of the people who were on the Thornridge team or who played against them on the state champion in the state championship game. I talked to broadcasters. I talked to writers who had, who had covered them. Um, bottom line, it was just a, a labor of love. It was just, I thought, man, this is going to be a great story. What I found out was that there was a great element of integration, a black and white issue of this. It was the early years of desegregation. Uh, Buckner's mom and dad were educators. They marched for... Uh, integration of that of that previously all-white school thorn ridge and helped lead to integration so there was wow, a whole awesome. backstory i did not know so while this is all going on i had almost i had i think i had like one or two more interviews to complete and then i was going to be done and i could start writing the book christmas of 2008 i felt like a kick in the stomach i felt like i had food poisoning and i told my wife oh boy this is not going to be a fun night but it wasn't food poisoning and uh, three days later, I ended up in the emergency room. They took a CAT scan and said, I'm sorry, you have classic colon cancer. The surgeon is on his way in. You will have surgery as soon as he arrives. 
Um, Whoa! They told, so, they, so <laughs> all right. So out of nowhere, out yeah, of nowhere. So you, it's not like you go home or you start doing chemo for a while or what? They, no. you, you, they need to do surgery right away, and you don't leave yeah. the hospital. They didn't tell me this, but apparently my colon was fragmenting and it, it was bursting. And if I had waited an hour, I would have died. Whoa! And so they took out two thirds of my insides. Uh, it's about seven and a half, eight hours of surgery. Uh, I was in the hospital for two weeks. When I got out, they waited a month while it, to, re, to allow me to get some strength back, and then we started chemotherapy for six months. Um, it was during that chemotherapy that I went to my oncologist every other Monday, and while those chemicals were being dripped into my veins, I transcribed the interviews for my book. Uh, kind of a blessing in that I wasn't thinking about myself. I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. I was desperate to get this book done because I had interviewed the coach in his home. I'd even flown to Peoria, Illinois, where he was living at that time. And uh, he invited me to his home. I went through his scrapbooks with him. And we, we talked about every game, all the players. I had dozen. I can't even re- recall. It must have been close to 75 or 80 hours of tape that I had to transcribe. So while I was sitting there getting chemo for six months, basically, uh, I was transcribing those interviews and preparing to write the book. And eventually, once uh, chemo ended in July of that year, uh, I took a couple weeks off, went and saw Peter Frampton as kind of a reward to myself, uh, watched him play, best concert I'd ever attended. Thankfully, I was survived to do it. And then uh, started writing the book. I wrote it in August of, of uh, 2019 and got it out right around Christmas time. But uh, it was well received. It was uh, a labor of love. I got it done, and it was. Um, it, it's very rewarding because the coach and the players reconnected after decades apart. Wow! And uh, the coach what a hadn't heard things. Hadn't heard from some of those guys for since they were in high school in 1972, and of course this is <laughs> decades later. So uh, I felt very good about it. Um, more so that the, their story was finally told. And uh, it did really well for a self-published, self-promoted book. I mean, we sold about $100,000 worth of books retail. Now, I didn't make that much because my royalty was extremely small. I didn't get anywhere close to that. But when you think about a self-published book and to be able to sell $100,000 worth of them, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's amazing, man. What a Just what an amazing, wonderful thing that you decided to... like. Uh, I just I just think about the the months of you going through chemotherapy like what that would have been like if you didn't have the book to be working on. Did you, did you think about that a lot? Blake all the time. Um it's it's a it's a sad place um because some of the people that I was in those sessions with every Monday, they didn't make it. Uh there were there were smaller there were kids there even. I mean there there are kids hospitals that primarily for the children, but there were, there were still some young people there. Um, and they, they were sitting there. Many, many people just try to sleep their way through it. Um, yeah, it's, it's depressing. And for me, I was able to just bury myself, put my headphones on with my laptop, put the, put the audio files in and transcribe those interviews. And it, it was definitely a key to me getting through all of that. I ended up with a story, a half-page story in the New York Times, a Sunday edition, uh, featuring me holding up a copy of the book, basically indicating Scott Lynn beat his deadline. 
That's amazing. What what made you decide to self-publish? Did, did you try to shop it around beforehand or did you just right away just decide I'm going to self-publish this thing? Well, I, I did reach out to uh, some literary agents um, in New York, some of the biggest names, actually, some of the biggest name agents, guys who've written who were agents for John Feinstein or, uh, you know, Rick Tellender, or all, all these different sports writers um, that you've heard of. And they basically said, what you have there is a great story in Thorn Ridge, uh, especially with the black and white element of it. Otherwise, it's just a basketball story. And that's any team could have a, you know, could, you could do a story on any team. But um, the, the bottom line was they, they liked the, the backstory a great deal. But they said, you know what, it's just going to have regional interest. And the publishing companies at that time, they, they were, unless you could absolutely guarantee it was going to be a new york times bestseller they were not going to sign you up to do a book yeah um you know and and we got into you know many novels might get in you know that that's a, that's kind of a different genre so they but but as far as a a true story nonfiction book um they, they basically said you, you have no chance now i did have one small publishing company in central illinois blake that that did express interest in doing the book i had reached out to them but they there was little or no advance being offered. You know, the cash money you get for writing a book, and then that goes against your sales, and eventually, hopefully, you get some more money on royalties. But they, they weren't offering an advance. They were going to just publish the book for me, and they wanted my book to fit their format for sports books. It, it would have to retail for 19.95, and I would get a very small royalty from that. And they said the book could be no more than 200 pages. Hmm. Now, my man, manuscript was two, close to 300 pages, and I didn't want to have to edit out nearly a third of the memories and the quotes that were in this book from all these Thornridge players and the players and the coaches that competed against them and the radio and newspaper reporters that covered their games. I didn't want to be limited to 200 pages of memories. For me, it wasn't about being published, you know, to being a published author. It was about remembering history and, and telling their story in their own words, in their oral history. How did you even get a hold of these different people? Like you mentioned, the uh, the high profile guys in New York. Like, how, how the hell do you get a hold of those guys? Well, again, you. I was lucky because most times they don't take a phone call from any would be you know anybody trying to pitch a book. They basically just say, "Hey, don't bother us," and you can't get through. But I went through because I had through the years interviewed John Feinstein for each of his books mm. when I was on the radio in Portland. I I know John. Uh, I knew Rick Tellender. I knew, you know, different guys. And I asked them, would you, uh, uh, and they actually offered it. They said, look, if you, do, if you want, I'll get, I'll let you get in touch with my agent. Um, he'll probably tell you it's too much of a regional book, but if you want, I can at least introduce you to him. And so that's how I got through it. I, I'm not sure if there, you know, what other way is possible. I mean, they're all on the website. You can click on them, but if you read their bio or their information most times it'll say we are not accepting new clients we you know do not contact us we are not you know that kind of thing so yeah. it, it's difficult and and i think that's why there's less published material out there now than than in the past and certainly um you know the cost of of paper printing the books and things like that um if they know they're going to have a bestseller they're still going to sign sign somebody up you know and and certainly in the in the novels and the uh, fantasy kind of things where you could end up in having movie rights involved. That's uh, then they may take a shot at you. But otherwise, if it's a nonfiction book, I, I, frankly, the new book that I've written, I think is going to be one of the last books uh, of its kind written because I just don't think 
there's going to be people, certainly, first of all, the athletes aren't going to be interested in participating because they've all become their own brands and they want money. They'll sell their own book or their people will make sure that they get paid for books, right. you know, for, for participating. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough process. And I can truly tell you that <laughs> after doing two books that I've written now, I won't be writing another book, and, I, and, it's, and it won't be self-published if it is. It'll have to be a, uh, something that somebody pays me a lot of money to write. Yeah. All right. Let's, we'll talk some more about that at the very end of the interview when you're giving uh, advice to people thinking about writing their sure. own book. Uh, sure. So you mentioned some of the, uh, the bigger name authors that you know, and obviously from all your years being a sportscaster, you know a lot of big people in sports. Does that put you in kind of a, I got to imagine you got to be like in a weird headspace then as an author in the decision to write these books where it's like, you know, all these people who are famous, uh, but it's like, how do you ask for their help? And it, it, I, I don't know. It's just so strange. You know, like you might know somebody that has, let's say a million followers on Twitter or something that like, oh, if they only tweeted about the book that could help so much, but it, it it's kind of strange to ask people for stuff like that. It is, and frankly, because they have people that help them, I think, in many cases, uh, manage their Twitter account or their social media accounts, uh, even, if I, even if the athlete himself or herself were willing to do that, they might not be allowed to do that because they don't want anything out there that they aren't being paid for or that they're going to receive something for. So um, it's interesting because in this this newest book that i wrote the sports idols idols you know there's a hundred basically about 150 athletes that are superstars and hall of famers and you're right some of them i knew on a personal basis um and so they're easy to ask hey can i ask you about your for your childhood hero um but there were others that i didn't know and i had to explain well here's what i'm going to do I'm, I'm i'm putting a book together and it's going to be about the first childhood heroes of all these different cele- celebrity sports sports celebrities um and stars hall of famers i mean and i mentioned some of the people that that were involved so i had to you know kind of give him my history who i was hey this isn't just going to be a, a book that that you know it's not going to embarrass you to be part of it and so, you know, Steph Curry looks at me and says, oh, okay, I, I'll do that. That sounds like a good good thing. Our kids would probably like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it, they will. And so um, it, 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 there was a lot of difference in the various people. And of those 150 athletes that are in the book, there's probably, you know, they, they were all over the place as far as my degree of knowing them or my comfort level with them. I had some people I asked that uh, said no. LeBron James looked me in the eye and said, yes, I will do this. I will do this for you. And he called over one of his associates and said, set up a time. I'll do this for for this guy. I want to do it. I'm not going to do it now because the bus was getting ready to go. You know, They were leaving to go to the hotel or whatever. Uh, but the bottom line was about a year later, I was still chasing him, and he had apparently decided not to do it. So you, you never really got a sense of how they really felt about it. I think, though, Blake, now when they see the book, those who turned it down or walked away from it or did not give me consent at some point or their people didn't give me consent to include them in the book, I think they're going to kick themselves because the book's getting a lot of national play now, and it's it's certainly of interest to well, not to mention you have Steph. I mean, you just mentioned you have Steph Curry in there. Not to, not to mention all of the other like all time greats, but I mean Steph Curry is probably the most famous person in the entire world right now. You know, yeah, and it's one hot. of those things where like 
if so and so's in it, then it's okay for me to be in it type thing. Right. You know, but like they want they want to be validated and know that other big name people are in it. There's no bigger name person than Steph Curry. So yeah, I mean that that's right. it's so validating to have something like that. Well, and you go through that, and I did. I I will admit that that was one of my hooks to try to get these guys interested. Is that I would tell them, hey, hey I, you know, hey Steph Curry, hey Alex Morgan, you know, the U.S. Olympic soccer player. She she's one of the most famous soccer players in the world right now. And I, you know, I, I would say to all the LPGA players when I would talk to them, hey, I have Nancy Lopez and Annika Sorenstam already. So Paula Creamer and Stacy Lewis and. Uh, you know, all those players were like, oh, well, if they're in, I'll, I'll talk to you. <laughs> totally. um, and, and, you know, I had Yogi Berra and uh, Joe Torre and uh, the late Tony Gwynn um, for baseball players, uh, Hall of Famers, Brooks Robinson, uh, guys who were you know, certainly these are old time players. I have players from Michael Conforto, who is probably, what, 20 or 21 years old. He had two home runs in one of the, one of the World Series games this past year. All the way up to 97-year-old Bobby Doerr, who was a Hall of Famer with the Red Sox. I mean, we're talking four generations of athletes. So it's some in this book, there's somebody that somebody knows. I mean, almost everybody somebody knows. But it might have been an idol for, for almost every reader out there. There's going to be somebody that you go, oh, my gosh, he talked to Coach K of Duke. Oh, he had Ken Griffey Jr. Oh, I can't wait to read about Grant Fuhrer or Phil Esposito. So... It's a good book. I got the book and I, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm, I'm about like halfway through it, and I love it so far. It's it's uh, it's so interesting in the book getting to see uh, kind of like this this down the line, like like you said, you've interviewed all these different generations of people in sports. So uh, like one of the ones that I noticed was uh, uh, I think it's Jerry West gets mentioned by by like so many people as yeah. as the that he was their idol and then you interview Jerry West and it's like oh shit like this is the guy that everyone's been talking about and right. uh that happens several times in the book where people will mention somebody and then a few interviews later it, it's that person themselves and now you get to hear who their idol was um, yeah which if i if i'm remembering correctly with Jerry West then he said that he didn't have a childhood idol which was a little bit of a bummer but yeah uh, it was it was and, and that's <laughs> it's it, it was interesting but the reason he didn't have one was he lived in West Virginia he grew up there and there were no pro sports teams nearby and uh he he was kind of having a rough childhood yeah. uh, in, in his home it wasn't the most loving uh, uh home situation his father was was not a not necessarily nice to him and he escaped by playing sports himself so he kind of he had an idol kind of in that it was him, him i think just being able to go out and, and and play and be the best that he could be um and he said he eventually you know he had some people that he looked up to and what did you find that um athletes would be kind of more real with you when you were talking about them for sports idols idols than they would be other times like i, I think all sports fans get really frustrated when you watch athletes get interviewed because it, they just you know, they spout off the exact same stuff every single day. Yeah, we played really hard. We, you know, we really gave it our all, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, they, you never feel like you really get a piece of the athlete, but you really get a sense of that in this book. Um, did you find that, like, as soon as they start talking about their childhood, that they just kind of almost like change as a person? Yeah, absolutely. Because when you approach and and I've talked to reporters all around the country about this on various interviews now, and they've all said the same thing. You know, as a media person, if you walk up to an athlete and you say to them, hey, do you have a minute? 
immediately they, they they want to turn their back on you and run away. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't want to talk to you because they get asked the same stuff all the time, like you just said. But when I approach them, I would say, hey, look, I want to tell you what I'm doing. I'm doing a book on boyhood idols or childhood idols of all of our sports legends. And I would immediately throw out some of the names of Hall of Famers, like I mentioned, you know, Walt Frazier or uh, Jerry West or, or Mario Andretti or A.J. Foyt. Uh, people that I've talked to, they're going to be in the book. Or, you know, certainly Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, I mean, Dwayne Wade, uh, Dirk Nowitzki. I mean, you just throw out these names. But as soon as you would say, all I want to do is ask you about your childhood idol, you could see their eyes kind of soften, their their facial, the look on their face would change a little bit. And within m- just mere moments, they, you could sense that they were thinking back to when they were little kids and what who they looked up to who they idolized, who they were dreaming about being like. And you're right, they open up. And, and that happened over and over again. Um, I mean, one of, one of those stories, um, I mean, Stacy Lewis, the LPGA player, she, uh, she's talking to me about when she was diagnosed with scoliosis, a curvature of the spine at age 11. She, she says she wore a back brace for more than seven years. She wore that brace 18 hours a day, taking it off only when she was playing golf. But Blake, at 18 years old, she had surgery in an effort to relieve the pain. A titanium rod and five screws are inserted into her back. She rehabs for a year and soon becomes a four-time All-American golfer at the University of Arkansas. She turns pro, and in 2013, she ascends to the number one ranking in all of women's golf. I mean, and she says it was all because of my parents, my childhood heroes. Uh, They helped me through the tough times. Um, I mean, there's so many stories of inspiration and so many stories, uh, you know, the former Brooklyn Dodger pitcher Carl Erskine talking about his son Jimmy, who has Down syndrome and is an adult now and, and still uh, incorporated into society, into the community, and, and the changes and um, how things have changed through time, partly because of, of uh, people like Jimmy, that th- there was a time where uh, someone with Down syndrome would be just put into an institution, taken from the family and, and put into an institution, and... Carl Erskine's wife said, no, Jimmy comes home with us. And these are one of the stories, the kinds of things that came out when you started talking to these athletes about their idols and their heroes. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's such such a, like you said, like a softening, sort of humanizing question to ask people. So just all all these more human stories start to pour out. Yeah. No, uh, and, and Craig Robinson, I mentioned earlier about the the former Oregon State coach, he's now now on ESPN. I mean, he told me he was a standout basketball player at Princeton, Ivy League player of the year back in the early '80s. A couple of years, uh, became a head coach at Oregon State and Brown. Uh, and again, first brother-in-law, if you will. He told me that his dad was his hero, and and he went on to say, Frazier Robinson went to work every day, working for the city of Chicago, and he was on crutches because he had MS multiple sclerosis and he says his father worked every day and still found time to play ball with craig he would come home and play football or softball or basketball what was whatever was in season so frazier robinson was such an inspiration to his children that even these many years later craig robinson tells that story with such feeling and love for his father it's it's amazing that's so cool man um all right so when this thing airs the uh the super bowl will have been yesterday yeah. so okay. uh so are there any super bowl ties in the book like anybody that you interview that's either in the super bowl or stories told about people that are in the super bowl i do have a story about peyton manning um i, I tried to get to the mannings and could not uh the, you know some of the toughest 
people to try to, to, to reach were the guys that are still currently playing, the active players. But uh, I did get a story about Peyton Manning from Stan Brock, who was an offensive lineman for the uh, New Orleans Saints back when Archie Manning was the quarterback of the Saints. And Stan was a, the, a blocking for Archie. They were great friends. They stay in touch even to this day. But uh, Stan tells the story that uh, he took Peyton Manning and his brother Cooper fishing because he said Archie hated to fish. So I took him fishing out on this little pond. It was on, on this ranch and uh, a friend of theirs, I guess. And he says the fish weren't biting. So Stan let the Manning boys get into his beat-up old Chevy Blazer, put a pillow behind him so that they could reach the pedals on the, on the floorboard, and just let them drive around this ranch with, with you know, it just, he just said, don't break through any fences, just stay on the grounds, but just drive like crazy, <laughs> knock yourself out. He said they found a mud hole, and they drove it through the mud, and so all of this stuff. So that's kind of a cool story, but what's really neat is, that Peyton still remembers that because a friend of Stan's many years later, and I think it was at a Super Bowl a couple years ago, came up and tapped Peyton Manning on the shoulder and said, Peyton, I know who told who, who taught you how to drive. And Peyton turned around and says, you must be talking about Stan Brock. So it did have an impact that uh, the young Peyton Manning remembered that Stan Brock was a guy who who let him get behind the wheel for the first time. That's so cool, man. What what great stories to get about people. It's so awesome. It, it, it was a lot of fun. And again, thanks to all the players for sharing because they, they there's so much in the book that I think can inspire kids. Um, obviously, they won't know who some of the old-time players are, but there's still great messages. I mean, they'll know certainly the current players. But, I mean, there's a former major leaguer, Bill Kruger, who I think passed along a very powerful message to kids and their parents. Um, basically, he says that the most important thing kids can do is dream. Um, you know, he says that he was a kid with dreams. He wasn't even the best player on his high school team or his college team, but his parents let him dream. They didn't burst his bubble. They let him go for it. He ended up in the major leagues for many years. He still is a broadcaster for the Mariners up in the Northwest. He says, and this is the powerful part, I think, you own your dreams. They're yours. Nobody can take them from you. Give it all you got. And I, I mean, that's the kind of stuff, again, when you talk about is an athlete going to share share some of himself, I think Bill Kruger did it in that case. Yeah, definitely, man. God, that's great. Yeah, it, for anybody listening to this interview right now, it, you're basically a crazy person if you don't buy this book on uh, <laughs> it, like a digital version at the very least on uh, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever. Because, and we'll talk about some of the other issues with self publishing in a second. But sure. because of the the people uh, that Scott self published with. Uh, were in control of the pricing and how everything worked out. I know, like right now, anyway. So, like I, I bought this book last week. Um, you can get the Kindle version, which I read most of my books on my Kindle. You can get the Kindle version for four dollars on Amazon. So, if you have like an iPad or anything digital, if you just got a few bucks, you have to buy this book because there's so many great stories. And to get it for four bucks is absolutely absurd. Yeah, um, it's a steal at that uh, price, I'll tell you. And again, yeah. it's Sports Idols, Idols, subtitle First Heroes of Our Heroes. The Kindle version or the, the ebook version is the cheapest, uh, the, the best value. Uh, I didn't, it, since the book was 569 pages, uh, the self publishing company said, well, for us to print it, to produce it, uh, it has to be retailing for $26.95. Well, I'm not sure everybody wants to pay that. Uh, it is it is available, obviously, on Amazon for a little bit less than that. But 
uh, that's the retail price, and I, I couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, so talk to us about some of the other problems with self-publishing, um, if anybody listening is considering writing a book. Uh, so one is obviously no real control over price. You have a Kindle version that's $4 and a, retail, a regular version that's $27. That, that's pretty strange. Um, like what, what are some of the other issues that you've had? Well, l- let me go back to Thornridge as part of this, because I knew nothing about the book business back then. I was It was my first book, and I... I didn't know, in addition to everything else that goes into self-publishing as far as getting the manuscript in the proper form and the spacing and the proper fonts and the uh, and on and on and on, I didn't know that to use a picture in a book, I had to have written consent from the person who took the photograph, the person holding the camera when the pack picture was taken. I mean, if I take a picture, and this is crazy, Blake, I had no idea about this. I know, I know professional photographers might know this, but... If, you, if I hand my camera to someone to take a picture of me, the person I handed the camera to owns the rights to that picture. Did you know that? <laughs> That's crazy, That's bizarre. man. bizarre. That's crazy. But it's apparently true. I've heard that now from professional photographers who say, yes, that's the case. Now, in Thornridge, I wanted pictures of that basketball team so people could uh, kind of picture, visualize what who I was writing about. Uh, I was happy, uh, very fortunate, to locate a couple of people who took hundreds of photos of that 1972 team for their community newspaper or whatnot. They gave me permission to use all of the photos. Uh, I also wanted to use three Associated Press wire photos photos that somebody had given the team's coach back in the day. He still had them. And I also inquired if the AP had any more photos of the team. Well, it turns out AP only had one photo. And it also turned out that if I wanted to use any of those pictures, even the ones that the coach had been given, I had to pay AP hundreds of dollars. It was something like $500 if the photo was going to be full page, 300 if it was a half page. And so that added to my expense. Yeah. And and again, they assign various people to you to help you with every step of the book, cover design, format, layout, print size. Not an easy process, especially for somebody who may be doing it the first time. And even after the manuscript is turned in and you think you're done, it takes a month or two to go through the process of making changes to get the book the way you want it to look, uh, you know, the cover. Depending on which self-publishing company you choose, you, you might also have to pay for each thing along the way. So make sure that you, you carefully read your contract before you sign up to, to self-publish a book. But to, to go back to this, to, to Sports Idols Idols, I got done. I had been talking with uh, my particular company for over a year about all these idols I was speaking with, all these sports stars. And I turned in my manuscript. The next day I got an email saying, well, where are all your signed consents? You have to have written permission to include them. They're all famous people. And you can't use their quotes without their written permission. And I, I've been a radio and TV broadcaster my whole life. And if I ask them, tell them what I'm doing, and they speak into my microphone, that's verbal consent. That you know, To me, I thought that's all I needed. But after the fact, I had to go back and try to get consent from 175 high-profile athletes. What a horrifying or- thing to be told that long after the fact. That, yeah. That's just terrible. I, I, I gave up. For one day, I sat there and I said, this will be the best book that nobody's ever read uh, <laughs> because I just I gave up. And then I started thinking, well, I, I do have a lot of emails. I do have a lot of contacts. There's no way I'll get to all 175 because some of them I had interviewed at uh, celebrity golf tournaments that I was part of or charity events that I had attended. Um, but I thought I'll try to get if I can get 40 or 50 of these athletes, at least I can put a book out. But I went back. Uh, talked to, I, I got to almost everyone, didn't get to everyone that I was seeking. Uh, I either got ignored or I was stymied by some 
you know, some somebody that was working for them that said, hey, uh, you know, he's not going to be or she's not going to be part of this. But I got to even the families of some of the athletes who had died since I spoke with them. For instance, Yogi Berra and Tony Gwynn. I gave myself six weeks to get as many consents as possible, removed the other athletes from the book and submitted it, and it ended up at 569 pages. So 146 out of 175. Um, yeah, I lost some big-name athletes, some of the biggest stars in the NBA and the NFL. I was going to say, I, yeah, but, I don't know if, if we should mention their names, but you and I talked offline about that. Yeah. And, I mean, you're not exaggerating. Like Some of the people that you were that late, that you have a full interview with that is perfect yes. for the book, you cannot put in it because you can't freaking get a hold of them now because one of their assistants or whatever isn't passing along the little waiver for them to sign off on. And these are like huge-name people. I just, ugh, I'd be so frustrated. It, it's a killer. I, I mean, it's 569 pages. Just so the book is really thick and big in any way. So I, you know, I, I realize it might have been maybe I should have made it two volumes rather than just put it all into one book. But yeah, the names were huge. I won't. I, I don't want to say their names, but I can kind of get a give a hint as to why they might not have be in the book now, that, because their their gatekeepers probably didn't want the association because one of these athletes said his boyhood idol, his first idol was Michael Vick. Dog fighting issues, right? Don't want to be associated with that if you're a, you know, a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. And secondly, another one who was a high-profile baseball player said his first hero was Barry Bonds. Steroids, PED use, uh, allegations and whatnot. So, again, stay far away from any Barry Bonds mention. So I understand why they had to say no. And I guess I am glad that I had to go back and get written consent. Otherwise, if that was published and their people sued saying we don't have anything written, then the book would have been a disaster in many ways. But since I have 146 athletes that signed off, I feel pretty confident that everybody's thrilled to be in there. Yeah, definitely, man. That uh, it, it, That's awesome. That's just so great. Um, all right, Scott, let's wind this thing down and give, sure. uh, give a little bit more advice to anybody that's thinking about writing a book. So we told them about some things to, like, what not to do like don't interview people and not get <laughs> a written consent yeah. don't just right. go using photos and, and whatever you're doing uh what uh what are some things that people should do and what, what what kind of should someone be thinking about if they want to write their own book well let's just make it sort of short and sweet because we're short on time at this point i think I, you know, the biggest thing is shop around make sure you sign with a company that best meets your needs and read that contract before you sign it. Don't be rushed into an agreement. You might be pressured. Buy this right now. I can save you 50%. Do yourself a favor and take your time. Shop them around. There's, there are options out there. And, you know, you might find one that better suits your situation. And it might save you more money. Or it might, you know, even if it costs more, it might be what you need. If you, uh, you know, if you need a marketing package as part of it, then that's fine. But, I do want to mention, and this will be pretty much the last bit of advice I I would offer, is don't be sucked into buying all of the promotional material or the marketing packages that might be offered from your particular self-publishing company. From what I've seen, you'd be better off to consult with a book publicist who does that full-time. I mean, they're out there. That's their living. And it seems to me that at least some of the self-publishing companies are, are all about selling you stuff, your book your publicity materials, a marketing plan. That's not their primary business. They want your money and not necessarily for you to have a bestseller. They're in it to sell you as many of your own books as possible. So look around, uh, take your time, um, see what's going to work for you. 
Uh, and again, these uh, some of the self-publishing companies that offer you these other things, they're probably there's probably a place where you could get uh, a more effective tool to use in helping to publicize or market your book. Dude, Scott, great, uh, great advice, man. And uh, thank okay. you, I'm thank good. you so much for everything. I, uh, I'm really enjoying Sports Idols Idols. I'm definitely going to read Thornridge after this. And uh, <laughs> you've had a very awesome, interesting life, man. So thanks for uh, sharing with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Blake. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care, Scott. You bet. Thanks. Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.